Hello and welcome to a new month on Cloud Security Podcast. This month, we will be talking about serverless security. And to kick off the conversation, I'm talking about serverless compliance and governance, basically. How do you make your serverless application compliant? How much is the scope and how do you kind of get your head around this serverless landscape that has been created for us in this new world that we're kind of moving into it? 2022, a lot more serverless applications coming in. We even have a serverless conference. So I definitely wanted to cover this topic. And this month, to kick things off, I have John Ziola, who was kind enough to come on the show and talk about how he has helped a lot of customers have their serverless application compliant. He also spoke about the fact that the scoping could make a difference depending on the kind of certification you're going for and whether you want your entire serverless application to be presented to the auditor versus the ones which are relevantly tagged. That's how much I'll probably give as a hint for what you can expect on the interview. Rest I'll check, ask you to check that out. I also want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review and tagged so many people on the free giveaway that we're doing. For people who are listening over here, I would love for you to be part of the free giveaway as well. And I will leave a link to the LinkedIn post over here or to the Twitter post, whichever you prefer. You can go in and participate on to the free giveaway that we're doing as part of celebrating our 100k download. So thank you so much again for all the support that you guys give us. If you haven't given us a review or rating yet, I would definitely encourage you to do that because that helps the other guests find out how they are giving value by spending their time, which especially the weekend by coming over here. So thank you so much for everyone who has already done it. All right, then let's get into the episode. I hope you have a safe week and I'll talk to you next weekend. Peace. Time is the enemy of security, and that's where Exonius comes in. Exonius helps organizations immediately know what assets they have and shows which devices, cloud instances, and users adhere to or deviate from security policies. Learn more and try it for free at exonius.com. Hey, Cloud Security Podcast, Steve from Bridge Crew here. Check us out and start scanning your infrastructure's code against hundreds of security policies, both on the command line and in your IDE. BridgeCrew also adds security feedback to all your commits and helps you fix misconfigurations in both code and runtime. How do you get your cloud security news without scouring the internet for hours? I normally just head to cloud security news to get my weekly update on what's most popular in the cloud security world. If you are interested in this, check out cloud security news on all popular podcast platforms or on www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv. Hey, John, welcome. Hey, Ashish, how's it going? Good. Thanks for coming to the show, man. I really yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Uh, by the way, cheers, man. Thanks for coming uh, with a yeah. drink as well for virtual coffee. I appreciate it. But John, maybe before we get into this, I think a great place to start would be for people who may not know of you. I'm sure a lot of people in Pittsburgh know about you and around the US as well, maybe around Australia as well. I would love to know your journey into kind of the cybersecurity. Yeah, yeah, sounds great. So yeah, my name's John Ziola. I started in technology back in the GeoCities era. I don't know if any of you remember that, but whenever you could kind of hand type, hand code your own HTML and, and whip up a little homepage. I thought that was cool to do when I was in elementary, middle school. Started getting interested in technology. I remember printing out the HTML spec and just like reading it line for line for line. Like that's how I got introduced. Yeah, wow, okay. I didn't know that there was any other way. So yeah, and so that's how I started getting interested in technology. Thank you, GeoCities. I got interested in security probably middle school to high school. I was trying to play video games or do something that the, the school didn't want me to do. And so I spent a lot of my time finding out how to bypass their security. A lot of old school things, like if you used to, if you could run the at command, you could say like at one minute from now, run explorer.exe. 
and then kill explorer it would reload a system and it would bypass a lot of their control things like that right like little yeah. things just kind of got interested in that sort of stuff i found some things on my school network at one point and got myself hired by them when I was a senior and, and did some security stuff for them. I kind of went went from there. I was really into the kind of theater, like hacking in, in movies and, and, and things like that. Oh, for it. I got a first job. My first job was not in security though. It was more what we would call nowadays, like a DevOps engineer. Back then that was called a software engineer, but I was really focused on the automation for deploying fraud, non-fraud environments for a, a pretty big bank. I jumped into NetSec, did some security general work at another company. And immediately prior to my current position, I was a security engineer at a research institution. So we did a ton of open source things there. That was a lot of fun. I joined the Apache Software Foundation, worked on a thing called Apache Metron for a while there. And then about five years ago, I started, I co-founded my own company called CISO. Yeah, we, so we do security consulting stuff, right? And we help companies with modern tech stacks build out security programs, a lot of cloud native stuff. And those programs often need to be certified or tested in some way. And so for roughly the last five years, I've been spending a lot of time in the ISO 27001, SOC 2, high trust, bed ramp. Oh, awesome. And perfect kind of conversation we want over here as well. Now, the first question for today's topic, serverless security. I, I know a few people talk about it from a different perspective, have different, I guess it's the same thing as cloud security. What is really cloud security? So I'm keen to know your definition of what do you classify as? What's your meaning for serverless security when you talk about it? Yeah, I don't really have a great special definition for serverless security. I typically go back to the kind of CIA triad, right? Confidentiality, integrity, availability. That takes yeah. an interesting spin when you get into to serverless. Some attacks like uh, denial of wallet attacks where... It's kind of like a DDoS, but focused on spending your resources as the host uh, or the person paying the cloud bill for your, your serverless. So I think that it takes a little bit of an interesting spin, but honestly, I'm not uh, a big fan of needing to separate definitions of you know serverless security versus cloud security versus AppSec and, and things like that. Go down that road for another one of those. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Cool. So for maybe I think we talk about serverless primarily when I, I guess when a lot of people talk because it's the first episode, I do want to cover some of the foundational pieces as well. Because mm -hmm. when people talk about serverless, they only think about say a cloud server provided serverless like a Lambda or Google function or Azure. Are there more varieties or are there is that the only kind and they're the ones who are pioneering uh, Lambda function not Lambda, just serverless functions? Yeah. So there definitely are others, right? The CNCF's uh, serverless maintains a landscape page, uh, which is really useful and of kind of what the other providers are in the area. Ones that I hear frequently are Knative, OpenWhisk, Whisk, Kubeless, OpenFaz, things like that. Yeah. So there's a few different projects. OpenWhisk is a Apache project. So a lot of open ones and a lot of different options out there. I definitely see people using the cloud provided options, right? Like functions and Lambda and, and such that you mentioned earlier uh, a lot more often, but there are, are on-prem or kind of alternative non-cloud CSP hosted options. Yeah. Right. Okay. I mean, I mean, maybe we should probably be in cloud security podcast. We we'll probably just focus on the cloud security ones, but it's, it's actually good to know that there are other ones as well. Maybe, and I'm going to put the link for the CNCF landscape thing on the show notes so people can kind of go in and have a look at it as well. Now, talking about compliance and governance, you mentioned you've been doing ISO and I guess the FedRAMPs of the world. But is, is serverless something that can have features to be compliant in the first place? Because I always wonder if it's one of those shared responsibility model where it's just handed off to the cloud service provider. Are there any things like that? Yeah, that's a great conversation. We could talk about that for the rest of this chat. The short answer is yes, right? Like, so you can build a serverless environment to be compliant with these different frameworks. And just to kind of list them real quick, like what are the frameworks that I'm thinking of when I say that? SOC 2, 
that's ISO 27001, that's high trust, it's FedRAMP. You could also maybe include things like PCI, although that's really like a contractual obligation, HIPAA, GDPR, things like that, right? So some people include those in, in the mix. I'm primarily talking about that first grouping, the high trust FedRAMP ISO SOC realm. And yeah, actually, so when I'm building an environment or helping people design uh, an environment, sometimes, a lot of times when compliance is a requirement, that drives the move to serverless because it removes a lot of the need. You mentioned the shared responsibility model. It moves a lot more of that to the CSP than on yourself. And so you have a kind of a smaller slice of that pie of that shared responsibility that you need to worry about when you're being for those sort of, some of them are certifications, some of them aren't. SOC 2 is an attestation, FedRAMP is different as well, but with high trust and, and ISO, it is a, a clear certification where you have a external auditor come in and, and say, they go, oh, yes, you are now certified because you have a X. There's a little nuance in that too. So for instance, with ISO 27001, you can't actually have your technology, your product be certified. That's not what they will certify. They're certifying the what they call the ISMS. And that is the environment that surrounds that serverless environment. And you can put that serverless environment for your ISO audit, but you can't say that that is ISO certified. It's the ISMS. It's essentially the, the processes that support security around that serverless environment that you can get certified. But that being said, ISO still has Annex A. And although it's the least prescriptive of the bunch, it does have some things that are mandatory, some things that are required. And so your serverless environment would need to support those. And it can, right? I've helped multiple companies kind of go through, go through that process uh, without a hitch. It's definitely possible. That's such an interesting point because what that means is for companies who have applications which are fully serverless, then mm -hmm. probably then to your point, the, the slice of compliance responsibility is quite low, but for people who may be using a mix of, I've got some serverless, I've got some EC2, I've got something else and something else like that's my entire ice message. Mm -hmm. And Lambda is technically just a very small slice of even that compliance piece at that point. Yep. And it gets interesting too, because when you are working to get certified and as you're building your security program around those systems, there's lots of different ways you can do it. You could do process-based assessments asset-based assessments, controls-based assessments, right? Like there's all kinds of these different angles that you can take. And in a lot of cases, you have some flexibility uh, on mm -hmm. how you're going to do that. And sometimes the auditors are prescribed a, a method when they're going to be looking at your environment, they have, they're going to go the asset-based way or the process-based way, right? ISO is big on the uh, process matrix, right? And understanding kind of where, who owns what and how it's about the ISMS, right? Whereas others are different. Uh, NIST FedRAMP is all about controls-based, right? There's even that OSCAL project, which is very clearly says in their documentation, this only supports controls-based assessments, right? So they they want to go that route. But so it, it depends a little bit on which certification or attestation you're, you're going for, which angles you are feasible. But yeah, there's a few different angles of ways that you can assess the environment for security in general. Would you say, or maybe another great place to start, I guess, kind of digging into this conversation could also be talking about the building blocks for how people can start building towards i mean we kind of separated out hey if you're thinking of compliance in a serverless environment probably need to look at from hey I, I, is this just my entire product is server housing some lambda functions or is it more that you just have one component so for people who may have like a lot of components or maybe one component serverless what are some of the building blocks to start with from a security and compliance perspective? I feel like there's a few layers of defense I'm sure you can put into serverless as well. Yeah. So first of all, that depends a little bit on the, right? Like you are able to scope your ISO certification or SOC 2 or whatever to a specific area. And sometimes it would make sense to just exclude your serverless or only include your serverless, like maybe draw a boundary between them. That's the thing that I see people do a lot. But in particular, 
when we're thinking about these certifications on a serverless environment, a lot of it comes down to just your application security practices, right? And so while they're going to need to see like in FedRAMP world, uh, some sort of diagram with your SSP, like an authorization boundary, knowing where the data is going and some data flow diagrams, you can provide security a lot of different ways in the design of it. Obviously there's a diagram, but also if you're deploying that diagram with infrastructure as code, being able to apply, show that you have some sort of security controls around that infrastructure as code deployment. There's tons of different ways to do that. I think checkoff is a really good one. Kix is another TerraScan, TFSec. There's, there's a lot of options on the market. I even have a little Docker container I open sourced that brings those together and makes it kind of easy to run in a pipeline. But just doing something in your infrastructure as code security is, you know, a key part of those uh, like building blocks when you're deploying serverless, because you're probably going to be using a lot of different, like say if you're an AWS, you're going to use a few different functions that you might use uh, CloudFront, you might probably going to use some WAFs, you're obviously going to use Lambdas, Step Functions, S3 Buckets, Fire Kinesis, things like that. There's also just a lot of pipeline security to, to think about. So uh, your traditional static code analysis, the dynamic code analysis, software composition analysis tooling, and ensuring that the code that you're deploying is secure. And then there's runtime security too, right? Like, so just because you don't manage the operating system doesn't mean you don't need to think about how things will actually operate in runtime. So something that I see people use frequently in the AWS Lambda world is layers. And so to deploy kind of approved centralized configurations for logging or for some, you know, different sort of protection mechanisms and, and have one way to do it to kind of centralize your decent, decentralized deployment is another like really important building block and, and having maybe a little bit more scrutiny over that, especially if it's authentication authorization based, or if it's cryptography based or something along those lines, just making sure that it gets a little bit extra scrutiny before it gets deployed and just having all of your serverless functions use that, those shared layers. All right. I mean, it sounds like a lot of moving parts as well. I mean, kind of like any other application as well, you had the, the runtime the compile time for lack of a better word, you have the CICD pipeline as well. So maybe in the work that you've done, what are some of the example architectures that you come across for serverless? Like what are people using them for you? Yeah, I think the most traditional one is like an event-driven architecture, something where you maybe have a web application, a single page app with a bunch of JavaScript and it makes API calls from time to time as the users are interacting with the front end and serving those guys in the serverless, putting an API gateway in front and then hooking that into a serverless is a pretty popular one. I've also seen some data engineering, like kind of data pipelines use cases where you have lots of information coming in. So maybe it's some sort of a feed or, or a dump, or maybe even old school, like FTP, someone's dumping something on a server somewhere. Um, and you want to pick that up and make it more modern from then on, right? Or you could use like, a, there are FTP services, SaaS services and stuff, but taking the data, parsing it, taking the rows or the sections of the data, which are valid and kind of moving them on to the next step and processing them, cleaning them, preparing them for, if you're doing uh, machine learning, it's really important to have really clean data, but even just any sort of data-based visualization, having really clean information is important. Kind of ETL jobs, right? Extracting things from a data store, tweaking them a little bit and loading them somewhere else. And I've even seen monitoring. So although a lot of the environments I work in, people are using Prometheus and things like that for their health monitoring and things like that. I, I've seen scenarios where it made sense to kind of just throw a Lambda out there and say on this sort of cadence, check in on this other thing. Maybe it's a traditional app. Maybe it's something deployed into Kubernetes and you, for whatever reason, want to add something on top of that using serverless for those sort of like quick and easy jobs to deploy. Maybe it's even time, right? Like, oh, I just need this for the next three months. I don't want to have to deal with spinning up a server or 
doing a Kubernetes deployment or anything like that. Like I just want something quick using serverless for that as well. Makes sense. Right. It's an interesting point. I don't know why people use for FTP, but sure. Upload files <laughs> through that as well. But maybe those are great examples. Cause I'm going to think as you're kind of going through them, I'm just thinking, my, so wait, if I'm approaching compliance for my serverless application, obviously we spoke about the CI/CD pipeline, we spoke about runtime, all these other things as well. Now, natively, are there any features that are kind of with the modern compliance in mind where a lot of people are talking, talking about, hey, why not a cloud native service? I'm just making it up like, oh, my Lambda is already FedRAM certified. Maybe not the application being hosted by it, but Lambda by itself is. Like, are there things like that that you kind of see auditors, auditors are comfortable to kind of pick that up? Yeah, especially in the FedRAMP world, yes. So, and especially at the higher levels of FedRAMP, like if you're talking about FedRAMP high, we're actually going to be in a Gov cloud. There's a ton of reason to deploy your application in a kind of cloud native serverless way, making sure that you don't accidentally use a cryptographic method that's not allowed, or you store a private key material in a certain way that you don't want to. Just using those sorts of cloud environments where they kind of remove the ability to shoot yourself in the foot, right? They remove the sort of methods that wouldn't be uh, sanctioned for, for those sorts of deployments is really key and critical. And that also kind of goes back to a little bit the infrastructure as code when you're deploying these things, putting the configurations in place that allow this or don't allow that. One, one example is, so you can use uh, Rego rules with a, a bunch of different tools like Kicks or I believe Checkoff also supports a Rego. And I've seen some people say, oh, I my I have a tagging strategy where every S3 bucket or every resource that gets deployed needs to have a data classification key. And then the values are one of this list, right? And you can say in a pipeline, we identify that someone is writing Terraform that creates an S3 bucket. And that S3 bucket has a tag of data classification equals ISO 27001 or better moderator, things like that. Then you can have custom rego policies that make sure that the configuration of the cloud resource using server-side encryption, requiring multi-factor for deletes, whatever it is. But if the tag is something different, like you're tagging it for a SOC 2 that might be a lower bar, you might not have that as a requirement, just a preference. And for cost reasons or complexity reasons, you might choose not to do that. And it's kind of something that you can, again, push it early in your CI process to ensure that you're meeting whatever requirements. So wait, do people use compliance as a tag as well in resources? That's an interesting one. Because normally when people talk about tagging, they're really normally talking about the fact that, hey, this is uh, for business unit X. And so this is my tag. Mm -hmm. This machine yeah. would run from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Like I've seen those kind of people use that for compliance. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I've seen the criticality of the assets being indicated, the sensitivity of the information. That's a really key one. If you have a data classification governance that says all of your resources need to be X or Y or Z, public or confidential or regulated or whatever, or if you yeah. want to better define your boundaries. So you have, some people will just use like a multi-subscription or a multi-account way to do that. And they'll say everything in this one AWS account, ISO 27001, everything in this is SOC 2. But that gets confusing when you start overlapping or whenever you do a scope expansion of your certification, yeah. you're like, oh, I want to add this in. Like, oh, well, now I need to, it's like this and half of that AWS account and, and things along those lines. And so what I've seen be successful is using tagging to define that. And then I feel like everything is kind of downstream from metadata, right? 100%. So like if you just put good metadata on everything, then you can automate. 100%. Because I, I was kind of, as you were kind of saying it, I'm going, oh, okay. Because I think a lot of examples that I've seen for compliance has usually been, hey, we'll have this separate, now whether it's an AWS account or Azure subscription or Google account, the way they kind of do it, I'm going to separate my compliance components so they don't talk to anything else because I don't know what kind of auditor I might get. I don't, I don't want to throw heat at any auditors. I'm sure they're great ones as well. 
But I find that the whole aspect of kind of where the question started, are auditors being okay with using an, a, a cloud service as a pick for a control? For I feel yeah. bad saying that, but I don't know what's your experience been over there. There's a lot of other cool things you can do when you start tagging resources. So I'm involved in a lot of audits, right? Um, usually kind of supporting my clients on the technical side or coaching them. And one of the things we always say is answer their question, be honest, but don't offer more information than what they're asking for, right? When they ask a question, answer that question, don't answer questions they didn't ask. And so what, what I see a lot of times is the auditor says, hey, you say here you encrypt everything. Do you have any? And they say, yeah, or do you have whatever? And they'll kind of spin up the AWS console and they'll start showing all of the EBSs that they have, all of them. When what I coach them to do, and this is where you bring the tagging in, you just you can filter on scope ISO 27001. Now they're only ever going to see the things that are in scope for that audit. You could even do an ad hoc tagging for that audit. You could put like something yeah. specific. And so, and then for the rest of the audit, you can make sure that you're only showing them that specific slice. And again, this, this whole conversation that we're talking about now, are disks encrypted or whatever, is a great problem in a non-serverless, but in a serverless world, at least in the areas that I'm familiar with, more so in the AWS and the Azure realms, these things are just like encrypted at rest is kind of a, a claim that they that the cloud provider gives to you. And so as far as shared responsibility goes, like I don't have to worry about disks. I don't have to worry about that. Like if I go to their documentation and I look at what they're saying that they do, they say that all of the, the storage for these sorts of things are encrypted and we're great. Just go look, auditor can go look at the AWS documentation instead of looking in my AWS console. It's a much more safe thing to do, I think. And I think, so you, you find that sometimes it's, us ourselves and if we shoot us on our foot, I guess, by showing more than what's required. And that's kind of makes us not fail the audit, but at least makes it makes the situation a bit more difficult in front of us. Yeah, it just spurs questions. You start going down paths that you might not want to go into, or maybe you just weren't prepared to, to go down it. You want audits to go very smoothly and you want to be able to prepare and you can't yeah. prepare for everything. So you want to prepare a specific scope. Right. And then station on that scope is and use, use tagging in that context. So, but I guess just to, I think we kind of touched on it, but so that I have a clear answer for it, but are auditors open to the idea of, to your point about encryption, if there's encryption from AWS, yep, that works. It's so it's acceptable versus, Hey, how do you do your auditing? Oh, it's a service from my Azure provider, like acceptable, or is, yeah. is that not a thing at the moment? Like, cause they, do they know about it? At least the ones that you, I mean, we're not talking about the gentrifying it. Yeah. Do they know about it? That's like a key thing. My experience over the past few years of going through these audits and certifications and attestations and stuff, serverless or not, is that the serverless components of the environment, a lot of auditors just aren't familiar with it yet. And so that, that means that they're not comfortable. That causes them to ask extra questions and spend extra time on it. Sometimes it's a good thing. If you're extremely buttoned up, great. You know, spend as much time putting magnifying glass to the things that we have really nailed. But sometimes it's not. I, I always say that, if you, you know, get to know your auditor a little bit, and if they aren't comfortable, spend some time getting them. It's probably in your best interest to, to help them understand the design choices, why you chose to go serverless, and specifically from the, the security side, what guarantees you have, what expectations you have, where the improvements from the shared uh, responsibility model are, things like, yeah, I, I've heard lots of in the FedRAMP space, like government entities being uncomfortable and when you start bringing up, I, we're going to use lambdas for this inside the authorization boundary, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa like, I don't think we want that. And in, in some cases, it's because years and years and years ago, when this was a really early feature, there were some controls gaps, right? And some of them just kind of are holding on to that. And in, in some cases, it's, they just don't know what to make of that. And they know if you have an EC2, that's a server and they know how to deal with servers, right? And so 
um, spending the time to kind of educate your whoever's your your interested parties, right? Often your auditor, sometimes uh, whoever's sponsoring you, if it's a uh, FedRAMP, things along those lines. Awesome. So the education piece is important. I've got a question here from Shashant Kode, and I believe we kind of answered it, but if unless you had any more thoughts on this. The question was, how do you implement layered security in a serverless framework? We kind of touched on the whole runtime, and the, well, I mean, unless you want to add anything else more, I'd probably ask Sushant to kind of provide ones that he plays available, but uh, did you want to add anything else to this? I've seen a lot of interesting rollouts of kind of layers specific to like within the Lambda layers. The way I'm reading that question is also just layered security in general. And so yeah. you can architect Lambda to be front-ended by a WAF, right? So you can use the AWS WAF and you can put some controls at that level. You could use all, all kinds of techniques throughout the stack for encrypting and decrypting traffic and doing introspection. You could do network-based monitoring, especially if you have the ability to, to decrypt. You could do a network security monitor style techniques. You could span the traffic off separate and, and have detection mechanisms there. There's a few different ways that you can do it. It's definitely, in my opinion, a little bit more limited than uh, traditional mechanisms. And I, I think that that's a good, it reduces the number of options, uh, things that you have to consider as your layers of security. At the end of the day, I haven't found a situation where I was clearly able to say like, oh, like the traditional way is better. Running a, a server would have, or, or Kubernetes would have been much better for this, this one use case. And I'm talking mostly within the last six to 12 months that that has been more of the case than as opposed to like- I think it's worthwhile definitely calling out serverless doesn't solve all the problems as well. You probably want to find the right tool for the right job. And I think to funny enough, he's got another follow-up question. Any suggestions on serverless security best practices, which is probably kind of tying back to your layered approach before where you said you had a WAF. I think you could probably add identity access management as well. Like I think the AWS context, the IAM role that you have on your Lambda functions should not be overprivileged. Yep. And there is a whole, and I don't know if this changed uh, because AWS keeps changing this because not all Lambda functions are public facing as well. They could be private facing ones as well, right? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And each, I believe each function needs to have its own IAM role. So That's sometimes right. you get a little bit of sprawl there. And like it, yeah. if you're at really high scale, the manageability of that can be, can be difficult, but but you do have to have a role for each one. And that means that you can measure it and identify if it's meeting whatever expectations you have. But when I think of serverless security best practices, I really go back to application security best practices, right? Adding security into your pipeline, having a secure design of the stack itself and being able to talk through that and scan it for, I typically go towards for serverless security, some sort of IAC based scanning and, and deployment, but you could do audits of the, the the workloads of the environment in the console or with other sorts of tools too. I think things like Prowler, CrowdMapper, things like that, I believe those have some support for serverless environments. So yeah, a lot of it goes back to, in my opinion, really traditional application security best practices. The GFS bombs and software composition analysis, you're not using some third-party library that's from the 1990s and- See, that's you know. a good point because uh, kind of touching on the shared responsibility thing that we were talking about earlier and that the traditional models don't really apply in a serverless context because technically all you're doing is, if I were to kind of take a 10,000 feet view of serverless app deploying applications, we just have a function that someone in our company has written, like a Lambda function, which is could be .NET, Python, whatever. We just drop that into AWS or Azure or Google Cloud, and then that just runs based on our trigger. So from a responsibility perspective, if you don't have a storage, 
that you require for your function to run, then there is no need for a storage. Compute is owned by them, so there's no antivirus or malware protection. None of that stuff is going to work as well. And WAF probably is important because if it's internet facing and you have, although I, I sometimes wonder, WAF definitely would play a huge role from an OWASP top 10 or whatever you want to call it. Maybe a denial of wallet, maybe can you prevent it by that as well? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not really, I'm not really sure. That'd be, you probably could because you could write roles like if you're seeing an excess number of requests from a single IP or from a certain user agent string or something like that, you could start to deny them instead of yeah. just allowing them to spend your money like crazy by spinning up new instances. Yeah. I haven't actually ran into that before, but I'd expect you could do something. Yeah, and, and I just realized, as I mentioned it, I'm like, you and I know what denial of wallet is, but other people may not know what denial of wallet attack is. So do you want to just like touch on what is the denial of wallet attack in a serverless context? Yeah, so with serverless, one of the tenets of serverless is that scalability is not your problem. It's the cloud provider's problem, right? At least when we're talking about a CSP provided uh, serverless environments. And so it's someone else's problem. And so in response to traffic, you will scale up and in response to reductions in traffic, you'll scale down. A denial of wallet is a scenario where the type of traffic causes there to be additional expenses on the hosting side. So whether it's uh, long requests, things that they know will take a long time, or just a quantity of them, just kind of dinging your wallet, the credit card that's attached to your the billing account and, and costing you as the provider, as the person running the application running. Yep. Awesome. Great description. I think so. I think the that's a very common thing which is seen in serverless function world. The other one probably, and I'm sure you can add to it as well, is that the whole IAM role. So if you have mentioned FTP servers earlier, which is like, oh my God, why would you put an FTP? But sure. But I think the, the whole idea behind that is that there is a great talk gone in 60 seconds something from De on DEFCON, which is someone who's uploaded a file onto a Lambda function. They found out it was a container running in the background and were able to get a reverse shell back out. So you almost go like, oh, yeah. oh, so... Why would you go file upload in the first place? Because you don't really have any control of the compute. But I don't know, do you have any more examples of things that you've heard about in the serverless attack world? Yeah, probably not a ton, no. That's an, that's an interesting one. I do, I recall seeing some stuff on Twitter about that, uh, that presentation. I don't think I actually have seen it yet, but I could kind of guess at some of the interesting nuances of other non-AWS environments. There were similar problems like that and uh, you were able to do some like lateral movement and there were some interesting things identified like years ago, years ago. I, I forget which cloud that was, but. Yeah, because I think that's where I, I guess the identity access management PC spoke about earlier kind of fits in as well. Like if your Lambda function or if your AWS function, Azure function has privilege to do a lot more damage then maybe yeah. that kind of becomes a bit more challenging at that point. But hopefully that answers your questions, Sushant. And uh, yeah, so let's, security best practices to start off with and maybe some common attacks you want to look out for and we're kind of towards the tail end of the show as well and i kind of wanted to kind of give some guidance for folks who are listening to this for the first time and where can they go and learn about compliance and serverless especially like now martinez is working on setting up for his aws solutions us solution architect associate i wonder oh, what's a great place to start thinking about compliance and the whole serverless security world? Like where can people find more information about relevant to this? Probably two different recommendations there, maybe three. On the compliance world, each certification, attestation, compliance framework, whatever you want to call them, is handled very differently, right? So if you're interested in FedRAMP or working with the US government, for instance, following things in the DOD, the DHS, GSA, NIST, those all make sense. I'm a big fan of following NIST's uh, special publica publication drafts when they get released gives an interesting eye and a kind of inside loop to some of the things that are happening there. And there, it's usually for a reason, it's usually preempting some sort of later on step of a requirement in 853 or 
or FameRamp or something along those lines. And a lot of other frameworks look to NIST, at least ones that are based in the US, as influence to how they operate. So that gets you really kind of upstream. ISO is, is great, but pretty much to see anything there, you, you need to spend some money. It's not a ridiculous amount of money, but we spent a couple hundred bucks there, a couple hundred bucks there on uh, different specs, ISO 27001 points to ISO 27002, and then there's 27,017 and 18 and 27701. And then there's the auditor guidance and each one of those is going to be a couple hundred bucks. So that one can be a little bit more difficult, but starting at 27,001 could be a good place if that's what you're interested in. There's also on the serverless side, I'm a huge fan of open source and I'm a huge fan of some specific communities that are out there. The OSSF is doing really great work recently. The CNCF as well. There's the CNCF tag security the technical yep. advisory group for security. And there's some initiatives going on there with regard to serverless. There is the serverless working group within the CNCF, which is which is really doing some awesome work. I referenced them earlier in the landscape, but they've, they've done some other things with like cloud events and, and things like that. And my personal favorite way of getting to know this stuff is cherry picking very narrow use cases or scenarios, compliance requirements, whatever, and then doing some experimentation. Just kind of like playing around, spin up some lambdas yourself. I think my first thing I wanted to know when a specific commit in an open source project was in, was included in a release of that project. So I could actually tell people to start using it. Cause I'm usually like either putting in an issue or contributing something and there's a commit when it gets merged, but I'm waiting and waiting and waiting for that to get released. So I made a API gateway Lambda, um, like kind of a pretty small stack. That was the first scenario that myself in, in Lambdas. And I just would query it with this little client that I wrote in Python um, and used IAM authentication and just said like, hey, here's a commit and here's a repo. Is that in a release yet? And I made a bunch of GitHub queries happen and it would say, yep, it's in a release XYZ. Uh, you can go use this. It's kind of stable now or, or not. So yeah, I highly recommend experimenting and just kind of playing around and, and these kind of use cases that you think you might want to recommend to someone else. yourself, get a feel for the pros and cons. And in some cases, how bad the documentation is or how, how to use them. But yeah. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. I think I'll, I'll put the resources for the CNCF on us, but I think we have a, you and I are working on a serverless white paper as well. So we can probably hopefully release that to the public and get some more insights from there as well for uh, maybe someone like his answer for a more specific answer for serverless security practices, at least as yep collectively thought by more than 25 people who are involved in that conversation. But that's, so that's kind of like the technical question. This is kind of like now the last section, which is a fun question. Like there's three, not too many. I want to, for the folks to kind of get to know you a bit more beyond the technology side of things, I guess. So the first one being, what do you spend most time on when you're not working on say serverless compliance or cloud or technology? What's, what's your want to spend most time on? Yeah, I'm pretty narrowly focused right now, but I would say that my one side hobby is mountain biking. I, I just convinced myself that I've been doing it for long enough to invest in a really nice bike. So I've got a really solid uh, mountain bike now, and I've been doing it for like the last four years or so. There's actually a small group. I'm based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the United States, and uh, maybe 10 or 12 of us in InfoSec locally that all kind of go around to the different uh, mountain biking spots and that's how I spend my free time when I have it. Awesome. Uh, that's a great way to do it as well, man. I think uh, outdoor is good, especially with COVID. I think most people are like, great. So next one is, what's the, what is something that you're proud of, but is not on your social? Well, that's probably an easy one because I don't put a ton of stuff on social media. <laughs> I don't think I've even put 
so the tool I referenced earlier is called Easy Infra. I don't think I've put anything about that on social media at all. So I, I would have to say that that's a, something I've been working on for about a year now. And yeah, it's just, I've, I've used it internally and I've got a few clients using it as well and hoping to get more adoption of that. So if anyone's interested, check out it's yeah, kind of supposed to be a pretty seamless way to introduce security scanning to CI or CD processes when you do infrastructure as code. I'll put the link for that in the show notes as well. I a final question. What's your favorite cuisine or restaurant that you can share? This is super easy. So in Pittsburgh, we have this thing called to Pittsburgh. What it is, okay. is a normal salad. And then you put French fries on top of it. And you usually use ranch as the dressing because why wouldn't you? Yeah. So, so you feel like you're being, but you're actually just eating French fries with ranch. And so that's, that's like by far <laughs> one of my favorite. You can, you add a protein to it too, like put steak on it or, or chicken or something like that. But yeah, definitely the Pittsburgh salad is, is definitely. Wait, favorite. so is Pittsburgh salad like readily available anywhere? Like, or is it more like you go to like a Pittsburgh salad shop? Or is it like probably 60% of the shops around here, the restaurants that have salads, you could probably get. And in fact, sometimes it's assumed and you don't even really know unless you kind of look at the fine print. You're like, okay, this is just a regular X salad and it comes out with a bunch of French fries on it. And it's like steaming hot. And I'm like, yes, I didn't even <laughs> think that I was going to get this. It's great. Cool. Okay. Now I'm going to, I'm going to try that out. Yeah. Now since the space opened up, hopefully I can come on that side, but thanks so much. I really enjoyed my conversation. So thanks so much for spending time with us. I really would like to kind of keep elaborating a bit more on this. Maybe once we release a white paper as well. So. But I do appreciate you spending time with us and answering the questions from everyone else over here as well. But where can people find you when if they want to connect with you? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at John Ziola, J-O-N-Z-E-O-L-L-A. Uh, and I'm also on LinkedIn. That's probably the two best ways to, to connect with me. Uh, I'm also on awesome. GitHub as well. I'm not, I'm not very unique. I just use the same. No, fair enough. Thanks. Enjoyed the session as well. So uh, great job, man. But thanks so much for your time. I will see you hopefully on my next CNCF conversation. Yeah. Thanks for coming in as well. Hopefully uh, good luck with your exam, man. For everyone else, I will see you on the next weekend for another topic of cellular security. Thank you, John, for coming in. And we will talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. See ya. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to that episode of Cloud Security Podcast. If you found some new information from that episode, we would appreciate if you share it with others. Share it with us as well if you have any good feedback or good learnings from the episode. We are on all your favorite podcast platforms. If you don't find us there, you can always go on our website, www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv to listen to the latest episode. We appreciate your support in helping us grow. It helps us bring more guests. It helps us support the channel. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and talk to you on the next episode.